You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Rick Ahrens, a programmer who's spent more than a decade pushing the limits of what web applications can do inside browsers. We talk about his current project, MakePad, an impressive and very ambitious IDE that runs in the browser via WebAssembly, as well as outside the browser in native apps. The way he's been developing MakePad is unusual in his own right, and we talk about that as well. Software Inscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, MakePad. All right, Rick, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. So you have created this thing called MakePad. For those who aren't familiar, do you want to just give a little summary of what it is? Yeah, MakePad is like a do-over of the whole UI stack, as, as best I can manage. Back in the day, we built lots of HTML stuff. So we built Cloud9 IDE with a code editor with HTML and JavaScript. And at that point, I was getting really frustrated with HTML because you know the performance was just garbage, and we, and I, we couldn't develop the UI into new areas. You know, like we wanted to do all sorts of interesting things with the code editor, like inline widgets and animated folding and these kinds of things, and none of it worked with HTML. So I set off on a big adventure that has lasted now already 10 years to try to redo the UI in WebGL first. I tried it with JavaScript for almost six years, every single approach to redesigning the UI with a dynamic language, Mm -hmm. like a UI stack. That included the renderer, right? If you start with WebGL, you have to stack on a renderer, you have to draw your own fonts, you have to do everything. Yeah, so I started to develop ways of compiling JavaScript into WebGL shaders so that you could integrate the shader styling language into your UI stack. There was a lot of uh, effort there. In the end, the JavaScript angle failed because no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't make it performant enough. I even had web workers and all that stuff going on. It was really quite fancy. It had live editing, but then I figured out that if you really use JavaScript for hot reloading, then it's just not designed for that. It'll crash after a while, at least back when I tried that. Mm-hmm. I had to stop the JavaScript angle, and at that point I was a bit down because I already put six years into the whole endeavor. But then, you know, WebAssembly started to appear and Rust came uh, a thing you could try and use. So I switched over the whole mental model of making programmable shader for styling into a new structure, which is a completely different language, of course. Rust is very different than JavaScript. It doesn't have a GC, which is the biggest difference, but also the syntax is very much more strongly typed, or I would say strongly typed, and JavaScript is not. So yeah, I just ported the whole idea and started continuing iteration in Rust and WebAssembly. And we're now like three or four years into that project, and I can safely say that it's really starting to work. I finally have a UI stack that I would say is performant to my, uh, I find it acceptable if you would. <laughs> I will use a different word. I will say it is impressive. I brought up your MakePad demo on my phone. This is like a couple of years ago even. And it just like loads instantly. And it's an entire IDE like running in the browser on my phone's browser, not like a native app, not like I went to the URL. Here's a full IDE, and I wasn't measuring the frame rate, but it felt like it was, you know, 60 plus frames per second. Like just everything felt totally smooth, animated code folding. Like you said, you know, all of that worked. And aside from the fact that like my thumbs are kind of big for, you know, editing code like that, like I could have just used it as my actual IDE. It felt like 
I was very impressed. I have been using it as my actual IDE for years, actually. That same one that I, I use the native build. That's such a great part about Rust. Like you can compile to WebAssembly, but if you're a bit clever about how you set up your platform abstractions, you can also compile it native. I actually use most of the stuff that I build with MakePad native. And then, you know, if I want to tweet it or share it with the world, I make a web build. You use MakePad to make MakePad. Yes. <laughs> I have an old version, which is really starting to annoy me because the great thing about having your own IDE is that you can fix little workflow issues that you have by simply programming it into the IDE. And that is really, really nice. But right now, the version I'm using is like two years old or something, and it really needs an update. So hopefully in the very near future, um, I can use the next version. My co-founder rewrote the whole thing. Like I wrote the IDE that you see online probably in about approximately a year into the project. So I learned Rust and built the whole thing in a year. And then the iteration started. You know, we had to, essentially, I, I didn't know Rust very well. So I had to learn how to write proper Rust. I had to evolve all the systems. So for instance, in the beginning, the first iteration, the UI structure was very static, right? It was uh, compiled in. So the dream of having a visual design tool to build the UIs was just not possible with the architecture. So it's, I spent a lot of time trying to fix that. And I think I think I have that now, but it's a really lovely uh, approach with Rust. I'm so happy that I can finally build something for web and for native, you know, just like we'll probably share some links uh, near the podcast. Recently, you could start using WebAssembly threads and, and SIMD, right? That's instruction mm -hmm. multiple data. That's a very new feature, especially threads with shared memory is very recent, but SIMD is even more recent, I think. And I've always had this dream of, oh, you know, why can't I run a fractal zoomer in a browser? You know, if I have these features, threads and SIMD, I can, I can make a really cool one. So I made one and it really works amazingly well, also on your phone. But now that I had native, I could just make a native build and up the number of threads to eight and it just flies. It's, it's really, really nice to be able to do that. That's awesome. Now, I never worked on something as featureful as like Cloud9 IDE, but I have similar memories of what you were talking about of trying to, and this is like many years ago now, trying to do things in the browser where it just was not possible because of the performance limitations. And I remember doing WebGL stuff. I remember do, using web workers. I definitely worked on one project where the solution we ended up coming up with was, as it happened, the particular thing that we were doing was amenable to server-side pre-rendering. So we were able to do a bunch of work on the server because before we were doing that, like it would just, you would load up the page and there would just be a loading spinner, not because it was waiting for network data, but because JavaScript was just doing a bunch of work that needed to be done in order to you know render the scene. And moving all that to the server and, and being able to do it ahead of time sped things up a lot because the server was so much faster. But on the one hand, I'll hear about that. But on the other hand, I know that a lot of people will talk about, for their use case, the browser is fast enough. And obviously, there's a wide range of applications you can do. You know, if you're doing like a, I don't know, booking a flights or something like that, that's not nearly as demanding as like putting an IDE in the browser. But at the same time, the browser has this huge potential as an app distribution platform. It's like the best user experience you could possibly have. It's like you type in the name of the thing you want to use and you press enter and you're using it. <laughs> there's no waiting for a download. There's no installation. There's no update process. It's just, it's great. URLs, it's, it's a wonderful experience. 
I mean, this is why I've put so much energy in trying to do this in a browser, right? This is the best experience you can have, at least showing people your application. So for MakePad, we are aiming to build a desktop IDE and design tool in one, like, you know, the old Visual Studio where you had a UI designer and you had an IDE. For us, the same. However, we can demo it on in a browser, right? You can just show people how it works. And then they might have the activation energy to make the local install. And it's just the same code base. And that is so, so nice. I was talking to my uh, UI designer. I have two co-founders. I have an excellent engineer, uh, Eddie Bruel, and I have Sebastian, UI designer, also super brilliant. It's really great to have more people working on it as well here. Nice. So I was talking to him about, okay, so how are we going to show MakeBad in a browser, you know? So there is really no need for us to use images of the product. The product can just be the oh, image. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it loads faster than a JPEG, so... <laughs> yeah, right. Loads faster than a JPEG. Like, how often do you hear that about a web application? Usually, it's like when people are talking about web application loading times, they're usually complaining about it and how long, especially on a phone, how I long know. it takes to like even parse the JavaScript, let alone actually get something showing. If you load it from local disk here, it's ridiculously fast. I have something like for the fractal zoomer, I have 180 milliseconds time to interactive. And for the IDE, it's something like 300 or something. Network traffic to that, of course. But even right. that, like for the IDE, where if you do use broadly compression, which is amazing for the WebAssembly, I think you get down to something like 300 kilobytes over the wire for the whole IDE. Wow. And then maybe 150K of TTF files because it needs to have its fonts, right? It doesn't load. You can't use browser fonts, so you have to fonts. Right, because of uh, WebGL, right? Yeah, because of WebGL. I mean, there are sort of ways around it in a way. You can use Canvas and sort of extract lifts that way, but I don't know. It just seems easier. <laughs> yeah. TTF, because uh, on native, we have to use the TTF anyway. So. so fonts aside, you have an entire IDE that runs in the browser, 300K compressed. That's how much goes over the network is 300K plus yeah, fonts, plus, I guess. Fonts. So maybe you're like 500K in or something, and then you have it. Yeah. So uh, that's three years of Rust code. No matter how hard I try, it's not going to get bigger faster. I remember reading an article. It was from Google. Article is the wrong word. It was an announcement, like a product thing, you know, marketing thing. And this was around the same time that Google had a number of prominent web developers that were saying very loudly, we, everyone needs to reduce their payload sizes. And this announcement page was multiple megabytes. I want to say it was 30 megabytes. That sounds really way too high, but it was definitely more than one megabyte. And that was just like, hey, look, it's our new phone. To think that that's how big of a payload that is compared to something like MakePad, you have an entire IDE and 300 kilobytes. That is astonishing to me as, as a longtime web developer, that that's even possible. Yeah, we're standing on the shoulders of a nice compiler that really crunches down the WebAssembly standard, which is designed to be highly compressible, and then Broadly, which is also a brilliant compressor. So it's not magic. It comes from a lot of hard work from a lot of people. But if you then also are disciplined about your dependencies, because that is something I do, that is my job, is to make sure that what we're building is really tiny to compile. And that means being very restrictive about your dependencies. Because the Rust ecosystem is, the approach is very much compile time is irrelevant, binary size is irrelevant. So we'll just do whatever creates the fastest code. Mm -hmm. 
uh, which is, I think it's a good angle in a way, but on the other hand, it makes the developer experience not so great. There's been a lot of complaints in the Rust about C++ people looking at Rust, they always go, oh, the compile time is so long, right? But it's because the ecosystem doesn't care. And if you do care, like the whole IDE on desktop with the whole stack, components, everything compiles in 8.4 seconds on my new M1 Max. Mm-hmm. And that's a clean build. Clean release. Oh, release build too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the bug build is not even that much faster. It's like seven seconds or something. But that's with all the dependencies, and that's how you get you know small WebAssembly size as well. If you just throw everything in the kitchen sink in there, it's just not going to be a small. I have actually experienced this. So even though like Rust has a compile with optimizing for size rather than for speed, like minimizing size rather than maximum runtime speed, because there is a trade-off there. That doesn't really help all that much, though, but yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Good to know. <laughs> Link time optimization helps, and... CodeGen units is one that also helps. Yeah, so in Rock, we have a web REPL, and we do it with the optimize for size setting. So it's basically got the entire Rock compiler. I shouldn't say the entire Rock compiler. All the Rock compiler stuff that's necessary for the REPL, which is almost all of it, doesn't have like any of the editor stuff built in. We do use CodeGen units as one. We tried enabling link time optimization, but actually like cargo crashed and i'm not sure why we haven't we've never figured out why we're not able to enable that someday hopefully we'll figure it out but with all of that we have like 1.2 megabytes for the web raffle and i bet right, there right, is uncompressed right like uh, my that's compressed uh, that's compressed oh, okay. yeah it's like it's like four point something megabytes uncompressed okay yeah i'm like with the id I, I get to like 1.3 megabytes uncompressed but importantly like we have a bunch of dependencies And we are not disciplined about trying to like, you know, do things ourselves. Like I remember, I assume this is still true, but like you've done things like, for example, on the native client, you're not using like Winit, which is this very commonly used Rust crate for like cross-platform window management. But you're actually like, you went and looked up the, as I recall, like the Mac OS, like low level system libraries for like opening windows. And you're like, I'm just going to call those directly and not use an abstraction. Yeah, yeah. We removed all of the abstractions and just wrote our own Cocoa layer. Just talk straight Apple APIs that you can read docs for. That's been the approach with everything we do. We just write straight towards the, the platform APIs that you can read the docs for. I don't need someone else's crappy abstraction to debug. I'm not saying that my abstraction isn't crappy, but at least I know why. <laughs> It was a lot of learning, you know, you have to learn Objective-C essentially, and you have to learn how Apple does stuff. But once you get that, the platform access is amazing. For instance, I uh, recently, uh, one of the other things I've always wanted to write was a music toy that loads plugins from your audio system, right? Like uh, native instruments or whatever big plugins that you've installed on your desktop machine. You want to load them and send it MIDI data and have the UI pop up and all that stuff. Sure. So I dove into the APIs that Apple has for that called audio units. And because we talk native Objective-C pretty much, I just figured it out. And now I can you know, load audio units into my audio layer that is identical to the web version, which, of course, can't load audio units. But at least now I'm unblocked on native and I can do these things that are just so much fun, you know. So how does that work specifically? I mean, like you're writing Rust code and the Apple APIs are all written in Objective-C. Yeah, so someone wrote a little macro that looks like Objective-C in Rust, but it compiles out to doing the actual calls. So this is using, I'm assuming Rust's like C FFI, like Rust can do arbitrary C calls and Objective-C can be 
invoked using arbitrary C calls and so putting the two together. Yeah, and you can use those macros to make it look like you're writing normal Objective-C. It's a little library by Stephen Sheldon. That's really the bottom glue layer that I use to talk to Objective-C in that sense. But that's a tiny library. And, uh, you know, I, I stripped out some dependencies that they used as well. So is that the same approach that you use? Are you doing an equivalent thing on Windows and on Linux? Yeah, exactly, on Windows and Linux. On Linux, we talk Xlib and whatever... Um, POSIX stuff, and on Windows, we talk Win32 with all the old stuff that I did 20 years ago. So, you know, I do have some experience there. I'm not completely new to it. And on Windows, we do COM. COM isn't as pretty as Objective-C is in Rust because you you still need the interface descriptions, right? Objective-C is, is so weakly typed in that sense that you can talk to it without much of a type definition of what you're calling. Hmm. But... With COM, you kind of need the C++ structs, right? You need the V tables, otherwise you can't call it. So, Oh, interesting. So you have to get the layouts exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And once you do, though, um, yeah, you can still use some macros to talk DirectX directly. Like for an art project a few years ago, I wanted to have live 4K video going to a texture, right? In a web browser, that always doesn't work. Like, try to get a 4K texture from a camera at any reasonable frame rate into your WebGL context, and you will go home disappointed. (laughs) I wanted to do that, and then, but there was no API. So what I just did was I read the Microsoft Docs and looked at header files for the direct media, whatever. Let's let's see, I, I forgot what the API exactly was, but it's just a bunch of COM interfaces. After doing that for probably a whole afternoon, I had a video stream. The video stream was, of course, massive. So I saturated a whole CPU core with just looking at the pixels. And then I realized that it was in YUI2 format, which is uh, not RGB. I didn't want to waste GPU time on it. So um, I just did the naive implementation of copying every pixel and doing that. But then it ran only 10 frames a second. So I couldn't get 4K. (laughs) into video memory. And then I remember that Rust had SIMD. So two hours later, this performance was four or eight times whatever it was before. And now I had a 4K video feed. Nice. You can just do stuff. With web, I've I've spent so much time on trying to do anything fun or impressive. And it always, you always end up with something that's like, meh, meh. Yeah, sure. It would be nice if Chrome would have solid frame rates. Like even with the fractal zoomer on Chrome, Often it's like, ah, just juddery or just not perfect. But when you run it native, it's just buttery smooth. So I'm curious, now that you've had some experience with, it's basically cutting out the abstraction of cross-platform abstractions, of just being like, I have this problem, I have my code base, and there's this absolutely lowest level operating system primitive for this. I'm always just going to go straight for that. On And just every operating system, I'm going to do it differently. And if there's three operating systems, I'm going to write this code three different times. Yep. Most people would say, especially if they're like in a business situation where they've got a deadline coming up and you know all sorts of pressures, uh, time pressures and stuff, they would say, well, I've got to use the abstraction. I have to do that because it's just going to take too much time to do it three different times. I'm kind of curious what your experience has been in terms of like, does it really take three times longer? Because I know sometimes I'll get something that is theoretically cross-platform, but actually like in practice, there's like a little bug here and I have to go figure out the intersection of like, why is this not working on this one platform? What part of the library that I'm using is going wrong? And that debugging process 
I usually think will probably take longer than if I were going straight against the operating system APIs and I'd like made it myself. So I'm kind of curious what you think about. It's a mixed bag. Like if you have a really good uh, cross-platform library that takes away the pain for you, then yes. However, in my experience, a lot of these libraries, especially on Rust, are half-baked, half-done, don't have the features you need, especially not when you're trying to make a product, right? Like for instance, Winit, I don't know where it is now, but we branched off from it long ago. But when I tried it, it had like such threading bugs with the UI where button presses would not arrive. It didn't have support for the Mac menu and the whole architecture I just didn't agree with. I don't want the application running in a different thread from your message loop. You know, you want your application in the message loop. That's a very important architectural decision. And they just, you know, they just didn't do that. They used another thread with message passing for a reason I thought was not good enough to do that for, which was when you resize the window, you don't own the message loop anymore on macOS. I'm not even sure if it's on Windows the same, but the point is if you have your message pump running, right, it's a little loop that checks for events that come in from the system and it dispatches it to your event handlers inside your application. That little pump that gets taken over by the operating system as soon as you start resizing a window. So if you're redrawing your, your UI inside that pump, then it stops drawing when you're resizing the window. And the solution that they came up with was use two threads and so that when that happens, you know, your render loop isn't blocked. And I was like, okay, well, you can also just start a timer and just accept that it's not going to be super rock solid smooth frame rates, but use the timer to fire off the event and then you can say stay in the same thread. You know, uh, when you have a problem and you have threads, you have like infinity <laughs> yeah, everything gets harder. Yeah, I, I don't want to deal with, especially not with complicated UI. Like imagine your UI thread is doing something and then all of the UI stuff from Apple and Microsoft is designed to run in one thread, right? Like if you get messages from your menu or if you're trying to update something in your menu, it's not designed to do that in a cross-thread way. I mean, you could try, but you're going to be going to get in a lot of trouble I after an angry rant, I just decided to just write it myself. I did read their code, of course, because I was just as new to Objective-C as I was to Rust. I'd, I'd never done it before. But yeah, when you do that, and I, I can see your point, like, you know, if you're trying to get to a result, you don't have time for it. Well, hopefully when MakePad is complete enough and we're getting very fairly close, you can just pick that up. I mean, in the end, we're building this not f- just for ourselves, right? We're building this for other people. So when we have a very nice UI-oriented platform abstraction, everyone can use it. Grab it, build for web, build for native, and there you go. So a Winit competitor, something like that. Well, no, Winit is, is much more low-level in a sense. It's just trying to provide a window that you can use a renderer inside. It's not even opinionated about the graphics API. It's really like SDL2 or whatever, GLFW, that kind of space Winit is in. But we're trying to make full red-blooded UI stacks. And it's not so much a window to run your cross-platform game in. It's really, it has to play like a native citizen on the operating system it's running in. Have you looked into, uh, and this is something I've looked at a little bit, but it's a pretty deep rabbit hole, is accessibility features. Because I know that's something that like also every operating system does differently, and they also all do it differently from how browsers do it. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I've investigated this, of course, because that's a, the first thing everyone asks when you're redoing the UI. What about accessibility, right? So on Apple, as far as I know, I mean, this is 
Uh, I'm not highly knowledgeable. This is just a bit of Googling and reading stuff. On Apple, the screen reader traverses the next step uh, UI structure. By the way, whenever you see NS in Apple code, it means next step. Like we're knee deep in next step here. This is like the 1980s Steve Jobs. Yeah, it's amazing though. Such a cool piece of technology that it's so nice to sort of like finally get to know it, right? When I grew up, it was all Win32 and I didn't have a Mac, never cared for any of it. Yeah, same here. Now you're finally a citizen in, in next step world. But these things have a base class called NSView. And these things form trees just like DOM nodes do. And they have interfaces that the screen reader can query for, hey, what's your type or what's your label or whatever. And that tree is what the screen reader traverses. So if you want to make it accessible on a Mac, you need to at least spawn a tree like that. You don't even need to render it. You need to spawn a tree like that that the thing can traverse. And that is not very much different than a DOM tree with ARIA nodes on it or something. I don't know. I haven't looked into it, but I wouldn't be surprised if Chrome actually ghosts that thing into an NS view tree so that it works with the screen huh. reader Apple. Because that's the only API I found. You know, the, Maybe it has some kind of query API that they can use directly. As I said, it's just like a few hours of looking at it. But on Windows, I don't know. And on Linux, there's just a bunch of projects that you have to link the library and do stuff. But yeah, on web, you need to spawn that DOM tree with ARIA nodes. And you don't need to render it. You just need to make sure that it's traversable and that the events fire into your application. So I think it's pretty safe to say that we're going to have to spawn an accessibility tree. And I'm thinking of making an API for that that is possibly disconnected from the way you render your UI. So if you want to have an accessibility tree, you have to do it in a way that binds into the system, but is not directly connected to the rendering. It's always seemed to me that the way that the browser does accessibility is a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you have a single source of truth for both the visuals and also the screen reader, which is to say the DOM, which prevents errors like, I remember to update the visual part of the UI, but I forgot to update the accessible part. So having the single source of truth there is nice in that regard. On the other hand, there is a downside, which is in some cases, it might be that if someone is using only a screen reader and is not also looking at the screen, you might be able to give them a much better experience by having a structure to the UI that's totally different from what the visual structure, a good version of the visual structure looks like. Sometimes they're the same, but that's a coincidence, not necessarily. It's a coincidence. A- and, and very often, especially if you're our home turf is IDEs and design tools and, and code editors, and these things are so disconnected from their render structure versus what you want an accessibility experience to be, right? Oh, sure. Like the HTML editor that we had, essentially had a virtual viewport with just a bunch of text in there. That is not a nice accessibility experience. Oh, yeah. Someone is traversing spans that are just, you know, in the window of your scroll area. It's not a traversable space if you're blind. So there's a double-edged sword in the sense that people will need to make accessibility specifically for their application. And this is where, you know, you kind of get into trouble because bad accessibility is better than no accessibility. I think that is the main thing where everyone is hammering on with web is like, yeah, great that you, you know, you made a better accessibility API. If nobody is going to make accessibility, we'd rather have a crappy accessibility than none at all. Something by default. Yeah. That's very difficult because for us, you know, we're super high performance GPU rendering the UI. I can't spawn ghost DOM trees for everything you see on the screen. You know, it'll just obliterate the performance that we have. 
in that sense, I am more thinking of maybe this is a machine learning problem in the later stages. You know, maybe this is a machine learning problem where you essentially have a voice interface with a computer that kind of looks at a UI like a human and you can control it using voice commands. I mean, it's not that far off anymore if you look at how fast machine learning is going in that sense. But it seems like you can do a better job if you're doing a native build than you can in the browser in the sense that you don't have that same performance concern, I'm assuming, if you're doing like uh, Mac OS. Oh, absolutely. If I spawn like NS views for all the millions of things you draw on your screen, you have the same problem. It's a bit faster probably, but it's not going to be great. So I think, and again, I have not actually implemented this myself, but when I was looking through the accessibility docs for, I forget if it was Mac OS or Windows or which one it was, it seemed like they had a way to directly access the screen reader API in the sense of just basically saying, hey, I want you to read this out right now. And if that's true, then you could maintain your own structure and just sort of imperatively call like, I'll maintain my own internal state of like where their sort of cursor is, what they're looking at right now. And I'll just say, okay, hey, do this voice command right now. Like read this out to the user. Absolutely. Like uh, this was uh, something I was looking for with web. Like, hey, you know, what if, can't you reverse it? Can't you just ask me what the next item is? Like, hey. Exactly. Don't make me spawn uh, giant structures in memory that most likely will never be used. But ask me what the next item in a list is. You know, that's something I can I can work with. But on web, no, that's just not happening on web. And on macOS, I haven't been able to find it. So maybe it's there. Maybe it's, I don't know. Yeah. This reminds me of like somewhat of a pet peeve I have about the way that browsers are developed. Like this is, I guess, a criticism of TC39, the committee that, that sort of standardizes new like web APIs. I mean, normally they work on JavaScript, but also they're kind of in charge of like what primitives are available. And I really wish that they would focus more on primitives and less on trying to make JavaScript more ergonomic when you're not using it with any libraries like nobody does. Exactly. I mean, this has been my gripe for so many years. Like, could you please make the simple stuff work first before you make an astroturfing API? Only this month or something, I was able to output Audio Worker with a shared memory. They could have started with that, you know, a decade ago. They could have started with WebAssembly. They could have started with so many things so long ago. But then if you look at what people do with browsers, I do believe they do listen to their audience, except the audience has been self-selected. You know, like a lot of people that would like to use a browser have long given up. I'm one of those really holdouts that is still using those new APIs to still do it. But most people that couldn't use a browser have long left. So I have a laundry list of things I would like to see WebAssembly get, like, for example, being able to directly do stuff to the DOM would be pretty nice for <laughs> for WebAssembly. I don't agree at all. I don't agree at all. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, absolutely not. WebAssembly needs to stay in absolutely clean sandbox. You can talk to the imports from WebAssembly and do all your DOM stuff. Like the MakePad architecture, I only have like five calls on my WebAssembly or something like that. It is completely message-based. There is no direct calling from JavaScript to the browser at all, also from WebAssembly to JavaScript at all. So that works, but let's suppose that somebody is, like the, the use case that always comes to mind for me is somebody's got some application where it's like primarily HTML and then there's some, maybe some JavaScript, but then there's little one little section of it that's maybe like a video player or a music player or something like that that's like really performance critical. And they want to do that part in WebAssembly. 
for use cases like usability, for example, like the buttons there, I mean, they could render that whole thing in GL, just that one part of the screen, but now it's completely disconnected from the rest of the page from an accessibility perspective. And maybe if they had better accessibility APIs and they could make it so it can tell when you've you know tabbed into there, maybe that'd be a different story. All that on the JavaScript side, it's really not... The- really doesn't and shouldn't move into WebAssembly because the nice thing about WebAssembly is that it's a secure sandbox. Essentially, you can run uh, pretty much any WebAssembly in a browser and it can't do anything unless you give it calls to do stuff. And that is a very, very nice architecture. That means that you can do all sorts of stuff like securely run a WebAssembly that is unknown. But as soon as you give it DOM access, then it just goes straight out the window. Okay, that's, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it from a security perspective. Also, it has no performance reasons. It really, you're not going to win much. Even with WebGL, because we use uh, messages, directly binding WebGL into WebAssembly is just going to complexify it. It's not really going to make it faster. Because I'm not, MakePad is currently running, the whole UI when you're code folding and everything is sub-millisecond for what it does. I'm below a millisecond for the whole thing, wow. including the JavaScript side rendering the WebGL. So yeah, there's not much gain there. What about string encodings? I mean, this probably doesn't come up in MakePad, but let's say I have some like really big string that I want to send out to JavaScript for whatever I want to do there. Maybe I've got a big legacy app or something like that. And I want to send this really long string. I can only send that over as raw bytes. And I can't say like, oh, this is you know, guaranteed to be UTF-16 because the browser. And I even can't say, I want you to treat this as UTF-16 and render it as such and assume that it's valid UTF-16. And if I'm wrong, you know, we'll suffer the consequences. Now I can see a, a security argument there too, where like, if it isn't valid. <laughs> you need a UTF-8 parser to take it and process it into UTF-16. There's just no real way around that in that sense. And But this stuff goes so fast that, Again, this is not going to be your bottleneck. If you have so much string data that your browser hiccups on turning it into UTF-16, you have other problems. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that is an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about the uh, sandbox. So I know that there have been for a long time proposals for direct DOM access for WebAssembly. And I guess it sounds like you would be opposed to those. Opposed. I mean, you know, people be people, do what they want, as long as they don't break my sandbox again. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I think we should aim for decomplexifying browsers and not for adding more and more and more features. That would be great. Because these things are already horrendously complicated. And if you look at the surface area that, for instance, MakePad uses in a browser, it's like, what, a thousand lines of JavaScript? That's it. I almost don't use anything. And I even have web audio in there, and uh, I'll add some other features as well. A lot of it is no longer really necessary especially not for a certain domain of applications. I'm always worried that every new feature, it's all written in C++. It's all a giant cluster of security issues. The more C++ object models people bolt into browsers, the more horrific it is. And this is really not a way we should go. We should go to, if you want a new feature, run this WebAssembly blob. Oh, you don't want to download this WebAssembly blob? Well, then figure out like Google CDN for you know, whatever, like you can solve it in a different way than writing it in C++ and shipping it in a browser. I heard something 
concerning from someone I knew who was at the time on TC39. This is several years ago, so I don't know if they still are or not. But basically, they said that whenever there's a new JavaScript proposal that comes out, nine times out of 10, it's the same one person on the committee who finds a serious security problem with it and brings it up and says, hey, we got to address this. And if that person hadn't been there at the table, and eventually that person's going to retire and it's not going to be on TC39 anymore, they're probably going to keep shipping new features, but they might just come out with security problems. Maybe somebody else will pick up that torch and take those on. But because of the whole like, you know, you don't want to break the web. You don't want to introduce breaking changes to JavaScript because that means old websites will stop working. That's, I think, a valid concern for like the pace of expansion, especially given that, you know, at least for, for use cases like yours and mine, we would rather they added more primitives and not more high level JavaScript ergonomics features. Exactly. And and especially, I think, you know, the favorite thing to rip on is always web audio, right? High level API, it's an audio flow. And nobody can use it because it's always garbage. It's always glitchy. It's always broken on this browser or that browser. And it's a complete waste of time and of security interface, right? If nobody can use it that way. And that's the problem with multi-browser compatibility is that, great, you have a standard, but you know the interactions of all these bits are so complicated. For instance, before I did MakePad Rust, I had a little venture into playing with HTML again. And I was like, okay, Let's build a file tree in HTML. Okay, let's do it. And okay, I want the icon next to the file tree thing. Okay, okay, let's see. They solved this, right? Flexbox, okay, Flexbox, cool, cool. Okay, the icon is centered now in Chrome. Open in in Safari. Ah. (laughs) No. Oh, this was fixed. After Googling and Googling and Googling, like, you're like, oh, it's still broken. Okay. I give up, I give up. I don't care if they fixed it now. It's just like... It's just not a good path for application development. And I think Google has long acknowledged that with Flutter, right? They're doing Dart for the language, which is a beautiful UI language, and then just uh, redoing the whole stack based on Skia. I mean, to have a Skia build that runs in WebAssembly now in a browser, presumably because it they can iterate that faster than the API in the browser itself. So that is just admission of, okay, Maybe this is the way we should move forward, just WebAssembly blobs for functionality and just primitives. But there's a lot of pushback against that from the webby people. They're like, no, we can't do that because, and then the argument always is, people will have so much diversity in the WebAssembly that we end up shipping everyone half of Chromium in a a WebAssembly blob all the time. And who knows, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. I'm just fine with it. Do whatever. As long as people don't break what we already have with WebAssembly, then you know I don't care that much. I mean, from my perspective, I think there are two different use cases, which hopefully over time, this will I don't know, become more and more acknowledged to be correct. But in my mind, there's web pages, which are primarily about content. And then there's web applications, which are primarily about interaction. And in my mind, these should be built in different ways. Like web applications are really like ought to be built with interaction and like custom positioning of lots of things being a first class citizen and something that is always kept in mind. And yes, download sizes matter there, but you're buying into the idea that like this is a download side that's going to be bigger than what a web page needs to have because you just need to ship a lot more code. In contrast, a web page, I want, like this is something we've been doing for the documentation in Rock, is like ideally it works 
completely without JavaScript. And that is actually something that we have. We have like the docs for Rock work completely without JavaScript. There is a tiny bit of JavaScript that loads on the page for an optional search bar on the side, but it gracefully degrades where if you have JavaScript disabled, that search bar just doesn't appear. And instead you get like all the results expanded out like for the entire sidebar. So you don't get the search functionality, but you get everything else. I tried to find a way to do that in pure CSS, but I couldn't find a way to make it happen. Everyone says pure uh, with in combination with CSS. Just <laughs> okay. A little bit of a clue of how horrific the C++ stack is that is behind those engines, you know? Oh, it's I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably Turing complete, like CSS is at this point. I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. I, I don't know if it is for a fact. It's definitely a computational swamp for sure. And it's hyper, hyper complicated. And this is also why I chose to sort of reimagine the whole thing into something simpler. And even if that simpler thing doesn't do all the things CSS does, I don't care. As long as it does the things that make me understand how it works. Nobody understands anymore how browser engines work with CSS, except for maybe, I don't know, three people in the world. Sure. And that is just not a doable thing. I want to understand how things are positioned, how things are styled. And uh, yeah, I uh, took liberty with simplifying that to a point that maybe not everyone will be able to do what they want. But to be fair, that's not really a problem. Yeah. Well, it's very cool. What Maybe we could wrap up by just talking about sort of where you're headed with MakePad. We've talked a lot about like how it got started and like some of the things that you've like unusual choices that you made along the way that got you some of these very impressive results. What's next? So the vision of MakePad is is quite broad and has evolved over time. But in the most basic form, I want to create a designable UI experience that lives inside a developer workflow. So that means that essentially you have Visual Studio, you have Figma, unify those things so that you can have a designer work with you on your product instead of making a design and then exporting it into whatever pixels or, or some CSS export or whatever it is, you want those two halves to iterate on the same product on this, in the same GitHub repo. That's where we're going. I mean, I built this whole UI DSL now so that it would allow a UI designer to write to it directly and hot load it into your application. So when we're ready, you should have something that is like Figma or whatever Photoshop style visual design that directly manipulates a running application. You can iterate it, you can change the animation curves, you can change the colors, change the shaders, and hopefully that'll be user-friendly enough that designers actually will want to work with it. That's super cool. And personally, I've gotten to the point where I've had so many frustrations with performance in like not just software that I'm writing, but also software that I'm using that it's just become a an obsession of mine to like try and make things run fast from the get-go and like and actually achieve software that runs fast kind of in its own right but separately it's also great when there's like a motivation of a specific use case because what you're describing as an experience only works if it runs really fast if it's not super fast nobody's going to use it it's not going to be a good experience exactly and but also like you know we're using rust we're using our own dsl that's also a high barrier to entry if you have to learn all that, right? So, but if you can drag a button around and you know use a design native tool to interact with your UI, that lowers the barrier also significantly there. Very cool. Wow, I'm excited for uh, the day when I could actually try this out. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I, we push everything to GitHub all the time. 
So you can just track what we do and I tweet links to our examples. I'm very excited to see it myself, actually. <laughs> yeah. We've been building up to it for quite a while now. And I think it's pretty much now all set that I can build the designer. My next thing is like, oh, so how do you do that? You know, how do you integrate a running application into a design tool. So yeah, up next is cross-process texture renders. So I'm going to run the application that you build inside the UI as a cross-process texture and overlay the design tool on the running UI in the application. Not the actual running application UI, but rendered in design mode. Because otherwise, you don't have support for custom widgets, right? Like imagine you make your own piano widget or something that is very custom to your application. If I want to completely design that in the IDE, it doesn't work because it's a custom control. So I'm going to run the rendering of that control on a cross-process texture inside the IDE. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm solving right now. Wow. Yeah. Very, very cool stuff. Awesome. Is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I mean, in a sense, we haven't really talked about the the GPU angle of MakePad, but you know, it's like a biggest chunk of the work that is in MakePad or a big chunk is the shader compiler. We made our own syntax for shaders that looks a lot like Rust and it's type inferred and then compiles to GLSL, HLSL and metal shading language. It even has a functional canvas in it. So you can do draw circle in a shader and it compiles out to a functional expression of that circle. There is no triangulator or vector API in use there. So are you using GLSL at all in MakePad, or is it all this DSL? It's all this DSL. It's all transpiled to GLSL on web. Nice. But we need to, right? Because it runs multi-platform on all these APIs. I need to transpile those shaders. And there's lots of features in that. There's like constant extraction. So when you put a slider on a constant, it hot patches that so it doesn't need to rebuild the backend shader. Huh. There are even closures in there. You can use basic closures in the shader language, and it transpiles completely to basic GLSL. Maybe that feature was one step too far, but I figured I could do it, so I might as well. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's working out well, at least. Well, I'm not using the closures, because the closures were actually sort of like a creative coding idea. Well, what if you can use closures, then you can parameterize these SDF algorithms in a much more ergonomic way, right? If you look at how Inigo Quiles from Shader Toy, how he explains his, his SDF examples, he's using closures, which you don't have. So it's like, you know what, I'm going to add those. Because you can transpile a basic closure to plain C. You know, all you need to do is pass in the closed over variables through the arguments, and then you expand, statically expand the function that you call to be parameterized by the closure. Essentially, it's just generics, and you can just expand it out to plain GLSL in a sense. Ah, okay, so you're basically inlining it. Yeah, yeah, but you're specializing the function that has it as argument so that you can pass through the closed over variables as arguments to the whole stack. So it's, it, it's just a generic, really. So yeah, there's lots of detail there and lots and lots of time spent. But I think it's probably the key thing that makes this whole approach work. Because without it, I would have all these different backends and no way to send it to shaders. I'd have to hand write the styling engines for every single platform that we have. And you wouldn't be able to use shaders yourself, right? I would have a circle API and I would have 
shaders for that for all the backends, but you wouldn't be able to integrate the shading language in your own styling because that is the whole key here is like your button has a pixel shader to style its button and that is completely user exposed and hopefully user friendly. Right. So it's either that or you've got to use some third party library that compiles the cross platform stuff, at which point you have that dependency and all of its dependencies. And yeah, and then it gets really complicated really fast. Right. Because there's like SPRV, SPR, exactly. Yeah. Transpilers, and then they're in, written in C. And before long, you know, your eight second compile time includes building Clang or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope more people are inspired by your approach here because I think it's not just a cool project in terms of like the output, in terms of like, you know, what MakePad itself can do, but also like the process by which you're making it is unusual to say the least and also seems to have separately a lot of benefits. And it's really cool to see. I really hope that we're building a foundational piece in the Rust ecosystem with this that is just a different angle to many things. Yeah, we're going to do a push to crates IO in about two months because it's a monorepo right now. We have like, I don't know, 30 crates or something, and they're all versioned with the monorepo. So uh, once we push this to crates.io, I have to split out every single crate with versioning independently. So we're kind of holding off with that until we feel like, let's start the versioning hell for all these 30 things. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's happening. Wow. I'll look forward to that too. This has been great. I, I'm really excited about all these things that you're working on. And, uh, and it's, it's just been great having you on the show. So thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It was, it was really good fun. 